Redemption Church. Uh, and this morning we're going to be wrapping up what's been about an eight-week series in, in this particular part of Matthew. We've been calling a leader worth following. Uh, and so we're going to dive into that in just a, in just a moment. Uh, but first, why don't we just take a moment and pray. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for gathering us together this morning. We thank you for Jesus who came and who's made it evident that, that he's the Son of God and that he, he came to be our Savior, that he came, that he lived, that uh, he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he sits on a throne now in authority that you've given him, Father, over your kingdom. And we're, we who know you are like our citizens of that kingdom, and we're children of God. He's made us right with you, where we can know the love of our Father. We can come in and speak and know our Father. That's a big deal. I pray, Father, that you uh, use this morning just to proclaim the gospel to us, that your Holy Spirit be proclaiming the gospel to each heart, that we would be proclaiming the gospel to one another, and that through our singing and through our uh, speaking and through the, the time of response and whatever we do this morning, that it would be a proclamation and a time for us to hear the gospel and just remember and know how great your love really is for us and how glorious you are, God. I pray, Father, that you uh, say what you would have said and that you have us hear what you would have each one of us hear, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each heart. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 12, obviously, uh, 20 through, 22 through 50. It's the last big chunk of this, this particular passage. And, and uh, there's a story going on here, so that's why it's rather long. But... Um, Let's just take a, back, take a look back over that. Uh, no, actually, hold on. I'm going to tell you a story. I forgot what I was doing. Uh, so several years ago, um, I got in a really big argument with a very close friend of mine. Like, like he was in my wedding. He was my best man. Close, right? Uh, and I, man, I can't really go into all the details. Honestly, it's been so long ago, I don't really remember all the details, but suffice it to, to say uh, there was a tremendous amount of pride in me that he threatened somehow, some way. And it really wasn't on him, to be honest, it was on me. But uh, my pride was threatened, and I totally lost my mind. Like, I totally went off on this guy. Like, and it's a good thing it was on the phone, because if it was in person, I may have hit him, and I've never hit anybody. But I, I don't know what happened. I just snapped, right? And I mean, I was ugly crying and snotting and screaming on the phone. It was bad. I'm not proud of it. It was really bad. Man, it's a hard, that's even kind of a hard memory to, to think about. But uh, it's a side of me that I've never seen before. It's a side of me that people don't often see. It takes a lot to get me to a, a place where I would lose it like that. But, uh, but I did. And, uh, and after that, we didn't talk much, as you can imagine. We didn't talk much after that at all. He ended up moving away after a few months. He moved away for another job in another city in another state. Uh, to do ministry, and, uh, you know, we had common friends, so I kind of heard about what was going on in his life and whatnot, but I didn't, we didn't talk. We didn't talk for a couple years. We had no contact whatsoever, until one spring, I was leading a, another ministry at the time, and, and I was getting a, which I probably shouldn't have been if you are listening to this story, but I was preparing for a, a Bible study for this ministry for the summer, on the great commandment. And I started going through the great commandment and the Holy Spirit just like really started pressing in on me and like pushing me to remember this friend and remember what was going on there and that we hadn't 
talked and that I was prideful and wrong and it was really me and that he just really was pressing on me to like reach out and to deal with that. So after a little while, I caved. I mean, I remember where I was. You know, I was in my truck. I was parked in this neighborhood and I just, it took me a while. I dialed the number and uh, pressed send and, and I called him. And we hadn't talked. Man, listen, one time he came home for Christmas with his new fiance that I had heard about. And he came to church for the Christmas service, and he brought her. And it wasn't a congregation bigger than this. You know, we were, we were near each other, and we didn't say a word. It was just like ice between us. So we finally, he answers the phone, and we talk. And it took a little while, and it was a very awkward conversation. It was hard, but I confessed some stuff. He confessed some stuff. We made some apologies, and I, we picked up where we left off, like, immediately. It was really good. And I wonder, have you ever realized that you're wrong? Like, have you ever realized that you're wrong, that you've done wrong? Maybe you were in an argument like that, but you refused to repent when you had the opportunity. Uh, maybe, maybe you've had an argument with your friend or with a spouse or with a parent or with a child. And you realize maybe even in the midst of the argument or maybe in the midst of your yelling or your getting angry that you're actually wrong. Have you guys been there? Like you know that you're wrong, but you have to keep going because you can't let them know that you know that they're right and that you're wrong. I do that all the time. Not Maybe not screaming, but like I do that all the time. I always know that I'm wrong because every argument I get in, I'm probably wrong. But, but your pride keeps you and keeps me from working it out. It keeps us from coming forward and dealing with it and owning up to what's going on. Maybe you let the sun go down on your anger as Paul tells the Ephesians not to do. You maybe even sort of feel like you want to apologize or you want to bring it up or you want to turn from your pride and turn to Jesus and repent in that moment, but you just can't do it. What happens when we do that? Does it get easier with time to bring it up and apologize later? Like, if you sleep on it a couple of nights, can you, like, go back and be like, hey, remember the other night I was wrong? Is that easy to do? Does it make it easier not for me. It just gets easier and easier to push under the rug and hope, for, hope that they forget. Um, or does it get more difficult? It often gets more difficult. And depending on how big of a deal the thing is that's come between you and this other person, it eventually either gets dealt with, it gets swept under the rug, or it can end up breaking and tearing apart a relationship like it very nearly did with this very close friend of mine. It's a poisonous thing. Our pride is a very poisonous thing. It infects us, it spreads like a disease, and it seeks to kill. And it does kill. It infects, it spreads like disease, and it kills. And it has to, because pride is all about keeping yourself on top. Pride is that God, God complex that Brent talked a little bit about last week, right? Pride is like, we have to stay on top, and the only way to ensure that we stay there is to kill everybody else and to kill everything else. And so we live in this poisonous world where we see it all around us, right? Brokenness compounds brokenness, compounds brokenness on top of brokenness. But Jesus came to stop the cycle. I know we talk about this a lot, but Jesus came to stop that cycle, to crucify our pride and to give us joyful humility as we follow him. He's our only leader. 
And he did that so that the healing that he brings about in each one of us can begin to compound healing upon healing upon healing upon healing. He came to change us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Not to get us to change, but to actually change us, to heal us, so that we can go about seeing healing where brokenness used to be compounded. Here's what I hope that we see this morning as we just take a look through Matthew chapter 12. I hope that the one thing that we walk away with this morning is that we have to act now. We have to act now on the impulse to turn from our pride and turn to Jesus. Because nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. We have to act now on any impulse that we may have to turn from our pride and turn to Jesus. Because nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. If you don't get anything else, that's what, that's what we need to hear this morning. So let's go through this scene in Matthew 12, 22 through 50. Basically, Jesus cast out a demon out of this man who's both mute and blind. And then the man is able to speak and see. And the Pharisees say that he's done this by the power of, of Satan. Right? But then Jesus shows that it's actually by the power of God. Like he demonstrates his wisdom by revealing the fault and the logic of the Pharisees. And then illustrates how logically he cannot be doing good works by the power of evil. It doesn't even make sense, right? If he's doing these good works, it demands that it is by the power of the Spirit of God. Listen to what he says in verse 26 through 28. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It matters that he just said that and that he made that so evident, that he made their logic make no sense and showed that by his logic it means that the kingdom of God has come upon them and he makes it evident in this argument with them. And just a quick side note, this is probably more of a reminder for me than anybody else, but I need that reminder to start my logic from the word of God. Maybe you needed to. Like, that may sound a little bit ridiculous, like, that we're not supposed to think or we're not supposed to question. Don't hear me say that. But it, it's not just a brainwashed, blind faith, right? Here's the thing. Like, if we're accepting that Jesus is God and that he's our Savior and that he's the only way for us to God, then we're accepting that his ways are better than ours. And we're accepting that he's probably more brilliant than us, that we actually need him. He obviously knows more than we do. It's not like he just came and died and rose again and thank you, Jesus, you paid for a thing. He, he's God. He better be more brilliant than us or why are we worshiping him, right? So it's important that we start our logic from the word of God and not from our own logic. It's just a good reminder. And some of what we'll deal with in this passage is a good example of that. But anyways, Jesus then goes on and he lays out the choice that is before the Pharisees. They'll either be with him or they'll be against him. And then he gives them a big-time warning, which is this unforgivable sin. All right, that has caused confusion in the past, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. He confronts them further with the tree and the fruit illustration. And in Matthew, 20, uh, in Matthew 12, 33 through 34, he says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need to hear that this morning. Some of the scribes and Pharisees then ask for a sign at this point, And Jesus says no. 
I think that's a little odd. Like when I first read it, maybe you do too. I don't know. But, but Jesus says no. Like, and for me, when I start from my own logic, I'm like, but Jesus, like they were obviously really close to, to accepting that you are who you say you are. Why don't you just give them a little sign? And then like that trips me up. But when you start from the logic of Jesus, um, we think about even just over the last several weeks, as we've been going through this series, we've seen like his interaction with the Pharisees and how they've been there as he's been like healing and performing miracles and doing wondrous things and casting out demons. And all the while he's talking with the Pharisees and he's telling them and making it very evident who he is and what he's about and what he's doing. And they never believe. As a matter of fact, last week, Brent talked about how they left conspiring to kill him. They left conniving to kill Jesus. So listen, when we start from the logic of Jesus, the whole scene has already shown, he's already made himself so evident. What's he going to do if, if casting out demons and healing withered hands and calming storms and whatever else that he's done over the last several weeks, which is a great many things, hasn't shown them that he is who he says he is, which he's actually used as a proclamation to say who he is. What are they going to believe now? I mean, what sign is he going to give them in that moment? So Jesus says, no, I'm not giving, basically says, I'm not giving you another sign. And that's why, because their minds are made up, and Jesus already knows that, because they've already made it evident, and they're already conniving to kill him. That's why he goes on to say that the people of Nineveh, do you remember the people of Nineveh, the people that Jonah went to, who repented when Jonah came? And they had like no evidence of who God was. They had no evidence before them. And the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who came to visit Solomon, and then she blessed the name of God just based on the evidence of Solomon's wisdom. She had no evidence. No miracles. Nobody was getting healed. No demons were being cast out. Nobody was speaking when they couldn't speak or seeing when they couldn't see. She just saw the wisdom of Solomon and was like, man, God has blessed this nation. And his wisdom is legit. And so his God must be legit. And so she blesses the name of God. And so Jesus says, look, these who had no real evidence like you've had and believed and repented are going to rise up and condemn you, right? In other words, you have all the evidence. You have evidence enough, more than enough, and you don't believe. So Jesus wraps up this scene by talking about what happens when the opportunity is given to believe, but then rejected and ignored. And it gets much more difficult to repent. It gets much repent. It gets much more difficult to turn from your pride and to turn towards Jesus. That's repentance, right? Is to turn away from this and turn to Jesus. And it gets much more difficult. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that passage passage. But listen, pride is a poison that infects and spreads and it kills. And that's why I hope we hear this morning, like I said, this one thing that we need to act now on the impulse to turn from our pride and turn to Jesus. Nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. Matthew 12, uh, 31 through 32, he says this. We're just going back a little bit. He says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now Jesus' words here about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and the unforgivable sin is in a few of the Gospels, uh, and it comes up in other places, but this is probably the most uh, 
uh, drawn out that we have. And this whole story speaks to what he's saying here. There's been confusion about it, so let's just spend a little bit of time. We must first remember as we dive into this, the context in which we're reading it, right? We have to remember that the context, this is a warning to these specific Pharisees that Jesus is talking to. And perhaps it's even more than a warning because he certainly knew they're already made plans to kill him. That their minds were already made up, as we saw just in the passage above. But think about what, goes, what happens with these Pharisees after this. They reject what they've seen, requiring further proof, proof by, by Jesus, by a sign right here. But Jesus gives them nothing more. And like I said earlier, what else would he give them? What else would convince them anyways? But Jesus has already demonstrated that he's the only leader worth following, right? That he really is who he says he is. So there's really nothing else that he could give them uh, to prove that he is who he says he is, that they would actually buy and believe. So they go on, refusing to repent, refusing to turn from their pride, refusing to follow Jesus, and they go on from there to conspire with world leaders to crucify Jesus. We know this story, and we know it's coming in this book of Matthew as we continue on. They conspire with world leaders to kill Jesus. And not only that, we'll read further and we'll get there. They connive to keep him in the grave. Right? They connive to keep him in the grave, revealing, and what this reveals is that they, they did hear and they did understand what Jesus said he was and what he was going to do. How did the poison of pride take them that far? How did the poison of pride take them so far that they were so hardened to what Jesus, who Jesus said he was and what he said he would do that they connived to kill him? They had him crucified. Not only did they have him crucified, but they did everything they could to keep him in the grave because they knew what he said and they knew who he said he was. How did they get so hard? See, it's important to understand that though we have paragraph breaks in our Bibles and this is a really long passage so, and there's different headings as we go, that this is all one scene. This is all happening together, right? This is one conversation. And so when Jesus is talking later in verse 43 and 45, it's actually relevant to what he's talking about here earlier in the passage. And so 43 through 45 says this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes, and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Listen, Brent hit this last week, but nobody can see past their own pride or get past their own God complex apart from the work of the Spirit making it known to them. We can't get past our own pride. We can't even see our own pride in our own God complex apart from the work of the Spirit making it known to us. But Jesus comes. He makes it evident by the power of the Spirit that he is the promised Son of God. And if he's from God and the things he's doing are by and through the, 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 the authority of God, the kingdom of God has come. And it's evident that the kingdom of God has come. And here is the warning that he's giving to these Pharisees then. If the life that Jesus offers isn't taken, if you don't pick up and follow him because it's made so evident that he is who he says he is, the last state of that person is worse than the first. So what's the unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about? 
It's coming face to face, being witness to the evidence of the divinity of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and rejecting it. It's coming face to face with who Jesus is, knowing that he has the power to save, knowing that he is who he says he is because of what's happened, because of the power of the Spirit and rejecting it and walking away. That's kind of tough. I want us to remember, though, even these Pharisees were given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to choose Jesus and to choose to follow Jesus. Jesus has been talking to them for chapters now in this book and through this whole series, right? He's been showing the Pharisees who he is and not just by saying it, like he's revealed it. He's shown them what he can do. And then from his own, from his logic and like has Debunk the logic that he came from an evil place to do good works for people. No, he came from God, and that means the kingdom of God is here. And he's given them opportunity and opportunity and opportunity. Jesus has given them the good news over and over and over again. It's just important to remember that. Because I don't think that we can say exactly what the last straw is. I don't think that's our place. I don't think that that's the point of this passage. I don't know when the last straw is. I don't know when somebody's walked away and God said, no more, you've made up your mind. Your heart is hardened by the poison of your pride to a point where you'll never see me. You've rejected me and you've walked away. I don't know when that point is and I don't think we can draw the clear line from here. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are bigger than ours. I believe that we really have to leave that to God. However, I think there's two things that we really do need to hear from this unforgivable sin. Number one, if you think you've rejected God a long time ago because you cursed Jesus, or you walked away from the church, or you did something really bad that has you convinced that you've just rejected him for the last time, or some other incident in your past that just has brought you, has made you question this time and again, I just want you to hear this. If there's an impulse in you to turn to Jesus and be forgiven and humbly and joyfully follow him, that's the spirit making Jesus known to you. And that means you can turn and you can choose Jesus. You can still follow him, right? Let's hear me. If you are troubled by this, if there's an impulse in you to turn to Jesus, then you can turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. And the second thing that we ought to take from this is a serious warning too, right? If you have an impulse to repent, to turn from your pride and to follow Jesus, act on the impulse. Act on what the Spirit's doing in you, who's revealing Jesus to you. Act on that impulse. Turn and follow the only leader worth following. Because we have today, we maybe just have right now, and we don't know what's coming tomorrow, whether we live or whether we die, the poison of our pride can infect and like harden our hearts, and it seeks to kill us, and it will. And you don't know what happens tomorrow. That's just the truth. If you have the impulse to turn, turn. Because we don't know what happens tomorrow. And I'm not just talking about, you might walk out of here and get in a car accident. That may happen. But I'm talking about, we don't know what pride's going to do to our heart, to where we just no longer can hear the good news of Jesus and take him. I told you earlier about a friend that I had this argument with, right? So, you know, when I, when I called him, we talked for a good while, and 
I found out that he was getting married in like a month. I knew he was engaged, but I didn't know anything about it. So I found out that he was getting engaged, I mean that he was getting married in like, a, in like a, one month later. He was the best man in my wedding, and I was going to miss his, right? A couple of weeks or so of me rejecting the prodding of the Spirit to call, and I would have missed his wedding. But instead, I ended up being like a co-best man in his wedding. Obviously, I was a late addition, you know, (laughs) because I was a real jerk. It was awesome, man. Like, I almost missed my my best friend's wedding. Hey, that's a movie. Anyways, so I almost missed this wedding, but I ended up being in the wedding. And it's it's not a perfect illustration, but I hope that you kind of get my point. Jesus told and showed these Pharisees and gave them opportunity to believe. But time and again, they rejected him. They rejected who he was and who he said he was and who he showed and demonstrated that he was. And they end up far worse than they were in the beginning. They end up crucifying the king and then conniving to try to keep him in the grave. It's far worse. So we have to act now on the impulse to turn from our pride and turn to Jesus because nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. You have got to act now on any impulse to turn from your pride and turn to Jesus Nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. There's a couple other things here I just want to go over that I think will help us understand how this applies to us today. Jesus says in Matthew uh, 12, verse 30, that whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And this echoes what we've talked about over the last few weeks. I don't know if you remember these things. Reggie talked uh, a few weeks ago about how to follow Jesus is to be on mission and that you can't follow Jesus and not be on mission. It echoes that sentiment. It echoes what we went through, uh, I think, the week after that. Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for the sake of Christ will find it. Right? If you're not with me, you're against me. If you don't gather with me, then you're scattering. Jesus is on mission to gather and reconcile people to himself. And he keeps saying stuff about how we're invited into that work too. So let's take a a quick look at the end of this chapter, which the end of this chapter is like almost a break from this scene, finally. And it's introducing the next series that we're going into where we'll be talking about the kingdom through some parables. But but Matthew 12, 46 through 50, it says this. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here's my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Dude, what's your problem with your family, Jesus? (laughs) What about that honoring your, your, your parents stuff, right? I don't know, that's the way I've always read it, but it, and I don't want to miss the point, we're not even going there, but let me just say this, it's made pretty clear that Jesus isn't saying these things to be harsh with his family. Uh, he's, he's probably making a point to his family, just as he's making a point to all the people there, but after talking with the people a little longer and laying out some kingdom parables, literally like a day or so later, he returns to his hometown with his family, right? It's just a nice side note, but so what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying here, he, he gives an invitation and a definition to the family of God. 
He gives invitation into the family of God, and he gives definition to what the family of God looks like. Who is in the family? It's those who do the will of the Father. Those who do the will of the Father. You know, Jesus has shown over these last few chapters, and, and really through even the Sermon on the Mount, that, that doing the will of the Father is really impossible on our own. So, if that's the case, that kind of sounds like a void invitation, right? But with Jesus, it's the light yoke of finding our rest in the person and work of Jesus alone. He's the only leader worth following. He's, he's, he calls us to a light yoke of finding our rest in him. So the family of God and, and, and doing the will of fa- the Father is as we act on the impulse to turn from our pride and just turn towards Jesus. Following him into a loving relationship with God, with each other, being reconciled to God, being reconciled to each other, and then joining in on this mission to gather people into the family, to gather people into the kingdom, to go out proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those who don't know. Finding that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God and that he has the power of God to save broken people. That there's hope found in him alone that gives peace beyond comprehension. We can take courage. Listen, because of the peace that we find in him, we can take courage and humbly submit to Jesus. We can turn from our pride and humbly submit to Jesus. Act now. Hear me, I'm saying it a lot. Act now on the impulse to turn from your pride and turn to Jesus because nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. What does that look like? What does it look like to act now on the impulse to turn from pride and turn towards Jesus? You remember how this whole scene started yet? Still tracking with me? Remember how this whole story started? Jesus cast a demon out of a man who's both blind and mute. It's fitting. It makes sense. Matthew's writing a story, right? What's he saying? Jesus casts a demon out of a man who's both blind and mute. And just as Jesus makes the blind man see, he reveals the blindness of the Pharisees by making his identity as the Savior, as the Son of God, as the only leader worth following evident. He made a blind man see, and then he reveals the Pharisees' blindness. And Matthew is calling the reader, that's us, to humbly see that Jesus is who he says he is. To not be blind anymore. To see the evidence that he is who he says he is. And just as Jesus makes the mute man speak, he reveals the inability of the Pharisees to speak good out of their evil hearts. And Matthew's calling the reader, that's us, to treasure and follow Jesus. For out of the treasure, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the call to act now and the impulse to turn from your pride and turn to Jesus is a call to believe and a call to speak. Get out of your chair and tell somebody you need Jesus today. Like, don't wait. Tomorrow, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may be so bitter and hardened that you can't do it. Do it today because nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. Paul says in Romans 10, 8 through 10, that the word is near you in your mouth. We just read this. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. 
That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then he writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Listen, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That pride that would keep you from turning to Jesus and humbly speaking up is the poison of pride in your heart, right? It's a poison in your heart. It infects, it spreads, it hardens, it seeks to kill you, and it seeks to kill everything around you. The impulse to turn to Jesus and speak up is a spirit at work in you. The pride that would keep you from speaking is a poison. The impulse to turn to Jesus and speak up is the spirit at work in you. Don't say no. He's good. He's inviting you into a loving arms of the Father through the personal work of Jesus Christ. So it's a pretty simple invitation this morning. If you don't know Jesus, speak up. If you don't know Jesus and you have an impulse to turn to him, speak up. If you know Jesus, continue to increasingly submit all of life to him by speaking up. He wants to change you for your good for the good of others and for the glory of God. We have to act now on the impulse to turn from our pride and turn to Jesus because nothing about tomorrow is guaranteed. Just speak up. We're going to have people in the back. We're going to move into a time of response, right? And we'll have some people in the back who will have lanyards on and say that they'll pray for you. Speak up. Like Get out of your chair and go grab them and pray with them. Tell them that you need Jesus and that you need to turn from your pride and turn to Jesus, whatever that may look like in your life. You can also grab me. We can pray. You can grab a friend. You can grab your spouse. You can grab your DNA partner. You can grab your MC leader. You can grab somebody from your missional community. You can grab anybody in the room and pray with them and just confess your need to turn to Jesus. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The call is to confess your need for Jesus and turn to him and believe. He is who he says he is. He's made it very evident. And there's nothing else he can do to make you believe. If the Holy Spirit's given you that impulse to believe, then do it. Because tomorrow, we don't know. At this time, the musicians will also come up and they'll lead us in a time of worship through music. And this is a time where you can reflect on these things. You can pray. I would invite you to speak to God, to speak to Jesus, to speak, to confess to him your need for him. And like I said, you can grab somebody and talk also. We'll also have a giving basket in the back uh, where you can participate in worshiping God through the giving of tithes and offerings. And then every Sunday we take communion as a church. And when we do this, we just come down this middle aisle, just hear that logistical piece. Come down the middle aisle and then go this way, uh, either way. And uh, and take the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. And when we do this, we're remembering the, the body and the blood of Christ that was given for us. That we remember that he, he is who he says he is. And in this, in this passage we just looked at, it's the, it, Jesus predicts his death. Right? He says the only son you're going to have the only sign you're going to have is the one of Jonah. He's going to go in the earth for three days and then he's going to come back out. And this is a remembering that he is who he says he is, that he has done what he said he would do, that he's the Lord and Savior. And it's an invitation to proclaim that to one another and to be reminded of the good news of Jesus, that, uh, that only through him do we have forgiveness of sins. Only through him do we have life. So if you're a Christian and you believe that, we invite you to come and take. 
and in so doing, remember Christ and, then, and be proclaiming it to one another in our actions. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we would ask you to just stay where you are. It's not because we don't like you. It's not because we don't want you to feel because we want you to feel awkward, it's because you can't say that, and we want you to hear what we're saying in our actions, that Jesus is who he says he is. We're all the evidence that you need. And the Holy Spirit, I hope and pray, is making that evidence uh, evident to you today. And so I pray that we would, have, we would act on that impulse to turn from our pride and turn to Jesus as we take communion and do these things. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day again. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for um, we thank you for Jesus, who's clearly the Son of God, who's clearly our Savior, who clearly has the power to heal and forgive sin and to bring life to death uh, from dead situations, from dead in, from dead souls. It's clear. I pray, Father, that you would help us to act on that impulse to turn from our pride and to turn to Jesus. That you would help us to speak up and believe. Father, that, uh, that you would help us to submit all of life to Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would just continue to increasingly become more and more like you. I pray that during this time, Lord, that your just Holy Spirit would just be working in our hearts and working in the hearts of these people. And that from this place... Uh, out of the abundance of, of our heart, which I hope would be you, and the ask that would be you. Um, Lord, that we would speak, that we would go out from this place proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We love you and praise you.